You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. This series is entitled, What Every Christian Counselor Needs to Know, The Seven Keys to a Spiritually Forming Conversation. Larry, let's recap what we've done thus far and just kind of talk about the different points and then we'll continue on to where we're going to go today. Principle number one, the red dot principle, know where your counselee is, particularly in the context of the immediate relationship. What are they feeling as they're talking with you? Point number two, what are you feeling as you're talking with them? What's the red dot inside of yourself? I call it the interior world principle. What is happening in me as I'm talking to you that allows me to be broken over what is not godly and thrilled over what is godly so mm-hmm. the spirit can be more fully released in me as I talk to you? Principle number three has to do with uh, it's possible idea, the it's possible principle, I call it, that it's really possible. Now, you could get in the way, but it's possible for you to become more and more and more like Jesus. No matter where you are, no matter how much of a mess you are, there's no reason to despair. There's no reason to give up. God can handle the mess of your life, and can I develop a vision for what you could become? And is that my attitude toward you? Am I looking at you with hope? Am I looking at you with quiet excitement? Or am I looking with you with, my goodness, what do I do now? i got to help you. You're really a mess. Mm-hmm. Or is my mood one of real hopeful vision? Those are the three principles so far. As we um, continue on, we're going to go through all the in this entire series before we're done, the, the uh, seven keys to spiritually forming conversations. What, um, what should be energizing us as we listen? Let me, let me just ask it that way. As we're listening, one, one take could be let's take notes and let's get this down. We've talked about that. Uh, how do we even be open? Holy Spirit, speak to me. Some of this can feel very vague or ambiguous. What should be going on in us as we're listening to even what you're sharing with us during this time? <laughs> One of the things I've heard from a couple of friends recently, said, Larry, you've never read a book that I could grasp in one reading. And, um, you know, I've read it two or three times and finally it's starting to dawn on me. So this is what you're saying. And I don't think that my books or my tapes should be studied so much as reflected on. Mm-hmm. No, I don't want to demean the point of study. There's a place for study, of course. But as you're listening to these, these tapes, my, my, my strong suggestion would be listen to them a couple of times. Listen to them with a couple of friends and start talking about it. Make this, maybe this could be used as a stimulus for group discussion among fellow counselors, among fellow friends, among fellow pastors. This could be used for an elder retreat mm-hmm. to listen to, for a couple of parents getting together and talking about how they relate to their kids. I think this could be an opportunity not so much to get it in the sense of being able to outline it, remember the the seven key principles or this and this and this and the 10 steps to how to do it, nothing like that, but more like, you know, it really is important to know where people are. It really is important to know where I am. Yeah, I really do want to have a vision for people. When you start thinking like that kind of quietly and reflectively, then you're getting it in the right sense of the word. You're not mastering it. None of this material will ever be mastered. But you can start getting a little bit, and it'll lead you, I'm confident, into what I call the new way to live. It's not what I call it. It's what Paul calls it. Paul says in Romans 7, which is the beginning of our whole ministry, Romans 7 and verse 6, that we're freed from the law so we can serve in the new way of the Spirit. There really is a new way to live, Mm -hmm. and we can give up the old way of the written code. The new way of the Spirit is not very organized. The new way of the Spirit is not very systematic. The new way of the Spirit is a flow with something that's going on within me that I really, really want. Do I really want to know you? Do I really care where you are? Am I willing to face where I am? Do I really want to see God at work in your life? Is that really happening in me? And Jim, I think the sad thing is, 
and I've been a counselor now for a number of years, so I'm talking about myself. The sad thing is when I sit down to do my professional hour with people, sometimes that's not what I'm thinking. Hmm. Sometimes I'm not thinking about the new way to live of really knowing God so well that I reveal his character in my relationships. But I'm thinking of, can I get through this hour? Uh, will all my training come out? Will I help this person? Will they come back? Because I have a free spot in my schedule, and I don't want to have a free spot because that means a hundred and some bucks. Will this hour ever end? Will this hour ever end? That's right. <laughs> will my eyes stay open long enough for the person to think I'm actually listening? Um, yeah. All sorts of things go on inside of people. That's why I like Irvin Yalom so much. If you haven't read Irvin Yalom, read him. He's not a Christian by any means, but boy, is he a bright guy who comes as close to being a Christian in his way he and the way he approaches people, mm-hmm. aside from some very basic assumptions where I think he's entirely wrong. But he talks about be very real, be very real internally. He talked about a woman came coming in to see him who was vastly overweight. And his first thought was, I'm disgusted by her. And Dr. Yalom wondered, can I really care about this person when I'm actually disgusted by her? Where's her self-control? She's Mm -hmm. obese. Do I know how to really care about her? Now, he shouldn't say that to her, but he needs to face that. And I think the the Christian new way that that is so, so available here is no matter what's going on, no matter how I'm feeling, I can approach God, I can know God, and I can actually relate to you with genuine love. I can face myself with full authenticity, and I can believe that God can do a miracle in your life. I'm not too comfortable with the word miracle. I don't use that word a lot. But it really is a miracle when somebody becomes like Jesus. And I can have a vision that you can actually be transformed. With a friend just the other day, um, just a wonderful opportunity for me to be encouraged. A guy I've been working with for, oh, four or five years. Marriage has been a mess. Folks, change takes time. But as we sat together just the other morning, he said, Larry, for the first time in all of our marriage, we actually like each other. It was a whole new experience. That's that not a small statement. No, That's huge. it was yeah. huge. Yeah. I about threw my coffee. I was so happy. We were just having coffee together, and and I said, "Man, tell me more. This is exciting." And and one of the things that that um, that, that he was saying was, you know, you never gave up. You saw me at my worst, and you never had a sense of, "Oh my goodness, what do I do with you now?" There was always a sense that there's something alive in me that could become a decent husband. So he is understanding along the way that you had a vision for him, because oh, yeah. if you didn't. How could you not just you know, throw in the towel and give up? And vision isn't always verbalized. Yeah, Sometimes it is. It's wonderful when right. it can be. But is there the attitude of what God can do in a person's life? Now, we're not going to have a realistic vision until we face the battle that has to be overcome for the vision to be realized. Now, when I start understanding your battle, we're getting now into principle number four. And let me just articulate it. Learn what the real battle is. I call it the flesh dynamic principle. Mm -hmm. Learn what the real battle is. Now, when you learn what the real battle is, two things will happen in you as a counselor. Number one, you're going to feel compassion. And number two, you're going to feel dependent. You're going to feel compassion, not irritated, not like, oh, for crying out loud, how come you eat so much every day and you weigh 400 pounds? But you're Mm -hmm. going to see a deep battle in the human soul that involves terror a deep battle in the human soul where this woman has never felt like she had an ounce of worth in her life. Mm. And you're not going to be irritated and judgmental. You're going to have a deep compassion for this very deeply hurting woman whose who's battle beneath all the weight struggles is the same battle you have in your soul. You're going to feel compassionate. And the battle you're going to realize is so profound, so deep, that you are profoundly dependent on the work of God for anything good to happen. So we've got to talk about the real battle. Learn the what the real battle is, the flesh dynamic principle, number four. How often are we waging war then against what the real battle is not? 
I yeah. mean, it seems like we would be doing a lot of that. We mystified it. We yeah. see the panic attacks. We see the depression. And all we think about is I want the person to, usually three things. I want the person to feel better. I want the person to enjoy their relationships. And I want the person to feel a sense of identity and meaning. You don't need Jesus for any of that. Oh, wow. You don't need Jesus to feel better. Leave your wife and get a new one. You'll feel better. You don't need Jesus to feel better. And I'm not saying long term, it's not going to work. But for the short term, you don't need Jesus to feel better. A lot of unbelievers feel quite happy, happier than many believers that I know. If you want relief now. Then Christianity is yeah. not a very good option. Right. If you want satisfying relationships, a fair number of people have satisfying relationships subjectively where they feel pretty good in their relationships and they don't know Jesus. Mm-hmm. A fair number of people are doing what they would call important things and we would call important things. I wonder how many heart surgeons feel like they have significance. I would think a fair number of them might. Sure hope so. The guy that worked on my dad and gave him a better heart and kept him alive for 10 more years, I hope he felt pretty meaningful. Maybe you didn't, but I hope so. You can have those three things without knowing Jesus. You can fight the wrong battle. You can fight the wrong battle of just getting people having a happier life. I call it good enough Christianity. Yeah. But there's a deeper mm. battle going on in the human soul. The Christian spiritual director, the Christian counselor, is going to face a far deeper battle than the non-Christian is going to be able to see. And the question is, what is this real battle going on in the human soul? And that's our discussion now. As you talk about this real battle that goes on, um, let's just talk about how one would ever learn what the real battle is. Uh, how do we know where to begin? How do we know day to day? Uh, you got a bunch of different clients, people you're working with. That could seem like a rather arduous task to know always where the battle is and what the battle is from person to person to person. It's the same battle in everybody. Hmm. At core, the details are going to be different. The stories will differ. I've never been sexually abused. My wife has been. Do we have different battles? And the answer is no, not down deep. I don't have battles with memories of sexual abuse. She does. But the core battle is not her sexual abuse. The core battle is not the, the fact that I had a mom, a good mom, who never told me that she loved me. So in that sense, she wasn't a good mom. Um, I'm grateful for her. I hold her no ill will. She was a wonderful mom in a thousand ways. And maybe your mother was very affectionate and told you she loved you all the time. So our battles are different? No, our stories are different. But our battles are the same. That, that's in, that needs to be almost a book title. That's just the way my mind... The, our, the battles are different, but the, sto- or the, the, the story is different. Or our stories are different, but the battle is the same. Sure. And some people are going to go scratch, scratch on the head. What do you mean by that? I mean, that's what a sexual abuse victim went through versus you know, your mom didn't tell you she loved you. I mean, the battle's always the same. And good theology tells you that. And let me just put it very simply um, the core battle is always between the flesh and the spirit. The core battle is always between self obsession, I care about me, I'm going to look after me, I'm going to protect me, and God obsession. I'm going to live for the glory of God. I'm going to surrender myself to him and trust him with all the things I can't manage. The core battle is selfishness versus God-centeredness, other-centeredness versus God-centeredness. Jim, I, I don't think that one of, the, one of the concerns I have for the whole Christian counseling movement and, and even for the spiritual direction movement, which both of which I'm grateful for, God has used them both mightily and he'll continue to use them both. But I'm not sure if we're taking the word sin as deeply seriously as we need to. Mark McMinn has written a wonderful book, Why Sin Matters. We maybe need to go back to Carl Menninger's book of how many years ago, whatever happened to sin, whatever became of sin. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if we understand sin very well. Um, One of the things that I would say that 
Paul, and I'll say it because Paul said it, that there's something inside of me that every time I want to do good, I find an energy in me that wants to do bad. There's the battle. That's in Romans 7 and Romans 8. Every time I really get a vision for what God wants me to be, to love my wife well, to, to seek him with all my heart, to engage in the spiritual disciplines and to find God in the richest way possible in this life, every time I find myself just feeling so energized toward the ministry and toward the spiritual life, at that exact moment, I find another urge rising within me. And many Christians have called it indwelling sin. Mm-hmm. And the indwelling sin, according to Paul in Romans 8 and verse is it 5, I think, perhaps verse 6, the indwelling sin, this, the, this, the, 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 the sinful mind, Paul says, is enmity against God. There's mm. something in me that looks at God and says, take a hike. That's the Oswald Chambers quote, sin is the suspicion that God that is not God good. That God isn't really good. And, and even more than the suspicion that he's not good, I hate him. Mm-hmm. I don't like him. I want nothing to do with him. Is that really in me as a believer? And the answer is yes, until the day I die. And the reason I don't like him, and part of me, and Paul says, I delight in my inner man with the law of God. So as a Christian, the deepest part of him loved God mm-hmm. and delighted in God. But every time he moved toward him, there was, a, there was an opposing principle. And, and, and the, think about a husband and wife having a quarrel. Um, a, a wife says something that the husband finds demeaning. And he wants to snip back at her and say, well, thanks for being unkind. Mm-hmm. Really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, I want to be a better husband. I really do. And so he's determined not to snip at her the next time. So the next day it happens again. And he's determined to be a loving husband. What happens inside of him that makes it difficult? Something happens inside of him that says, God's way is not going to get me what I want. I've got to get even. That's going to bring me so much more pleasure. The principle of love is not the way to go. The principle of self-protection and taking care of myself, that's the way to go. That's self-obsession. And the battle between self-obsession and God-obsession is very real in every person's heart. And as I listen to somebody tell their story in counseling, spiritual direction, they share with me their background, their sexual abuse, their, their mother who wasn't verbally affectionate, whatever the story might be, then I'm going to start getting a picture of how their self-obsession has been shaped. Mm-hmm. The battle is always the same. The shape of the battle might be distinct depending on the story. And given my particular background with, uh, with good parents who were not verbally and physically affectionate in certain ways, I think to this day, after being a Christian for all these years, to this day, there's something in me that says, I know what life is. Life is having people affirm me in very strong ways. And God isn't enough. And I'm going to see to it that I get affirmation. When I preach a sermon, I'm going to go to people that are smiling and saying, hi, nice to talk to you, so they can tell me what a great sermon it was. If I get uh, two letters, one being critical of a recent book and one being adoring of a recent book, guess who I'm going to respond to? Mm -hmm. Now, why would I do that? Because there's something in me that says, God, living a life totally for your glory, living a life abandoned to you is is not going to fill up that hole inside. I'm going to be empty if I live for you because you don't really care about me. I don't like your ways. You tell me to love. You tell me to stop protecting myself. You tell me to actually give myself to my wife, to my husband, when they're moving against me in ways that hurt so bad. You tell me to stay involved with my son who's breaking my heart. I want no parts of that. I can't stand it. That's going on inside of me. Self-obsession, God-obsession is a real battle that's happening in everybody's soul. As you say that, talk about going into a spiritual direction hour or a counseling hour 
and there's a pull on you as a counselor or as a spiritual director when someone shares a trauma from their past. Maybe it was childhood sexual abuse. Uh, maybe it was saying they just grew up with a, a physically abusive dad or a withdrawn. You know, there's no warmth, no tenderness there. And the pull in you is to, man, I really want to make them feel a little bit better by the end of this hour. Or maybe may say it more specifically, I'd like them to feel better about themselves. They have low self-worth. And maybe you somehow can succeed at helping them feel better about themselves, but they don't see God anymore clearly. They're still enraged. This initial, this, this core battle is still there. When there's a pull on you, because it almost feels like you, you can't. It, it, there's, a, there's a temptation to say, I want, to, I want to raise that self-esteem a little bit. And I hope every counselor is so tempted. If you didn't yeah. have a desire to see the person hurt less, what's wrong with you? Exactly. My goodness, Jesus looked in the crowds and he wept. I want these people to know life. I came to give them life and that more abundantly. Mm-hmm. So when I see somebody hurting, talking about their horrible background and their depression, my goodness, if I don't feel the pull of wanting them to feel better, then I'm not very much of a human being. But if that becomes the center of my agenda, then I'm not going to help them feel better. The real issue has to be that the reason they're not they're, they're not experiencing their wholeness is because they're not experiencing God. Mm-hmm. It isn't because that they were sexually abused as a child. That certainly hasn't helped. That's been horrible. But the reason they're not experiencing their wholeness, no matter how bad your sexual abuse was, is because they aren't experiencing God. Why aren't they experiencing God? Not because they were sexually abused. They're not experiencing God because they're losing the battle between self-obsession and God-obsession. Their pain from sexual abuse is real. Their pain from the rape, their pain from the divorce, their pain from their kid being in jail, their pain from life being so hard, their pain is very, very real. But in their pain, what they're saying is, I'm going to find some way to relieve this. I'm going to make it happen. There's no, there's no complete yielded abandonment to God. They're losing the battle. Jim, I talk about, I, I talk about the flesh dynamic, mm-hmm. and I like that term as opposed to psychological dynamics. When you hear the term psychological dynamics, you do think in terms of the person has been damaged and let's okay. heal the damage. Right. But psychological dynamics, I don't think is the right term because no fully innocent person has ever been damaged except Jesus. Uh, say more about that. Every person from the time they were conceived, if King David was accurate in what he said in the scripture, and of course he was, I was conceived in iniquity. Mm-hmm. Sin was with me from the point of conception. Right. We have a new granddaughter arrived actually yesterday. Mm-hmm. She arrived with a sin nature. Mm-hmm. And that means that there's something inside of her which hates God, which wants no part of him. And so if she were ever to be abused by a neighbor, and God may it never happen, but if she were ever to be abused by a neighbor, if she were, she happens to have wonderful parents and she's not going to be abused by them, but she's going to be failed by them. And if she comes to see me when she's 35 years old and I'm 160, when she comes to see me and talk about how badly she was hurt by a school teacher that ridiculed her in front of the class, how badly she was hurt by the first boyfriend she had that just dumped her in front of other people and how ashamed she was and how embarrassed she was, I'm going to hurt like the dickens for that little girl. Yeah. But I'm going to have to recognize that she wasn't innocent. Now, she didn't cause the abuse. She didn't invite the rape. She didn't invite the boyfriend to be unkinder. It wasn't her fault. I'm not blaming the victim. But what I am saying is this, that there's a principle within her that means she's not innocent. Her principle is, I'm at enmity with God, and I will not trust him to deal with this problem. I can handle it on my own. 
that self-obsession. And that is at um, in vitro, so to speak. I mean, we're born, and then as soon as we're born, there is no tabula rosa, the clean slate. It doesn't and, exist. And all the things we're that we'd like to believe. That innocent little baby, they are cute, they are cuddly, but... It's right there from the get-go. So let's talk about flesh dynamics, not psychological dynamics, because there's no such thing as an innocent person who's been abused. Right. Their abuse may not have been their fault, and in most cases, of course, it wasn't. But what they do with the abuse, which was not their fault, is going to reflect the deep battle between God, I love you with all my heart, and God, I'm going to handle this without you. Please leave. <laughs> and until we face that battle and until the person is broken over that, there's not going to be the kind of movement that, that you really want. Now, when you do face the battle... When you really get honest as a Christian counselor, as a spiritual director, and realize that there's a deep principle of sin within, and again, let me repeat something I said earlier, that those who do not see the principle of sin within are the ones who are most ruled by it. Wow. Yeah. Until I recognize mm-hmm. that, that, that even now, as we're having this conversation, there's something in me I could feel a minute ago, my mind kind of drew a blank for a second, and I could feel just a little moment of fear, I better get it back. Well, why? Because I want to glorify God? No, I want to keep the conversation going and I want to do well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, because God isn't the point. I'm the point. Let's get that clear. All right, that's the battle. And it's happening all the time. Now, is facing the battle discouraging? Well, it's far worse than that. It's, it, it means you're a total failure. Um, it was Nietzsche, not one of your more famous Christians, but Nietzsche <laughs> said that those that you, you only grow wise when you hear the wild dogs barking in the cellar. Now, what he meant by the wild dogs is what I, I mean for something very different by it. He's talking about the impossibility of existence to ever satisfy. And I'm talking about the fact that in the core of my soul, there is an, an enmity toward God. And until I hear those wild dogs barking, I'm never going to grow wise. So why is it good to face all this? Well, the principle four is face it. Learn what the real battle is, the flesh dynamic principle. The reason we can face that battle and the reason I feel very hopeful when I lead somebody else to facing their sin and their brokenness is because of the fifth principle. I can trust the Spirit's work. Mm. I can trust the Spirit's power. I call it the Spirit dynamic principle. And this principle can be so simply summarized, and it's the gospel. And all it means is, all it means, what a poor way to put it, everything it means, far more than I'll ever understand, it means that it means a couple things. When I'm sitting, to, sitting down talking with a client, when I'm working with somebody who's struggling with terrible sexual problems, with terrible low self-esteem, with terrible self-hatred, with a terrible history, or something more mild, whatever the case might be, whoever I'm talking with, if they know Jesus, I know a couple things. I know that right now they are 100% forgiven, so the Spirit is not there beating them up. The Spirit is saying, listen to the music your father is singing over you with delight. Mm-hmm. I know something else. I know that their identity is not a messed up person. Their identity is a Christian. They're not an alcoholic. They're a Christian who struggles with alcohol. They're not a sexual abuse victim. They're a beautiful Christian woman who has a terrible history of sexual abuse that is so hurtful to them now. Their identity is not their damage. Why do we like those labels? A, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a sex addict, I'm a sexual abuse victim. Talk about that. And then do you mind telling Rachel's public testimony she shared of why she didn't want to go to a specific group one time? No, I don't mind that at all, and she wouldn't mind it either. I think we like labels because they give us a false sense of control. (laughs) That once I can label something, when the doctor says, I know what you have, then my next sentence is, good, what's the treatment? Now now we can handle it. As opposed to, no, this is not a labelable thing. 
um, the real label is something very, very different, which puts me in a, in a position to be profoundly dependent on this spirit as opposed to in control of what my now disorder is. Yeah. Here's the, the 10 steps to handle this disorder. That doesn't work that way. Rachel does have a history of sexual abuse, rather severe sexual abuse, and no such thing as mild, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, in earlier on in our marriage, when I realized that she had been sexually abused, she made it known to me, I, I encouraged her to get involved in a sexual abuse recovery group. And she said, oh, no, I never will. And my first response to her, internally at least, I forget if I said it to her, but why not? I mean, are you ashamed? Are you embarrassed? Why don't you go get the healing you need? And she said, I don't want to be with any group of women who identify themselves, whose central identity is, we are all victims. Mm. I would love to be with any group of women who says, we are all Christians, and some of us here are abused. Let's talk about it. That's different. That's a very different view. And that's the gospel. Number one, I'm accepted. Number two, I have a new identity. And number three, I can trust the Spirit's work in this person's life as I look at them because I know, and this is huge, I know in the core of their souls, no matter how bad their background is, no matter how difficult their emotions might be, how painful, I know in the very center of their being, they have an appetite for God that is potentially stronger than any other appetite. Why do you, I know why, but, but say why you use the word potentially stronger. Well, it isn't felt as, as, as strong okay. at any given moment. Mm-hmm. I was talking with missionaries from Uzbekistan, and they were telling me the story just very recently of about a pastor who right now, as you and I are chatting, is in a terrible dungeon in that country for preaching the gospel. And he's being beaten literally every day, these missionaries told me. Mm. And some American friends heard about this. And they decided they were going to petition the states to deal with the government over there to get this pastor released. And when the pastor heard that the Americans were going to do all this, he said, oh, no, no, no. Tell them not to do anything like that. Tell them just to pray. Maybe God wants me here for a higher purpose that I cannot see. He'll deliver me when he chooses. And wow. I hear that and I have the same reaction. Yeah, right. If I'm in that jail, I'm going to have the White House flooded with letters, you know. <laughs> now, why? He has an appetite stronger to glorify God than he has to be released from prison. That's in me, and I want it stirred up, and that's in you. And can you and I together stir it up in each other? That's good counseling. That's good spiritual direction. What, what in the middle of that, as you're saying that, would be comfortable, for lack of a word? And you have used the word control several times. It's about control. What would be comfortable about me saying, hi, I'm Jim, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm Bob, and I'm a sex addict. Or uh, uh, associating with uh, the, the reality of we are all – this is a, vic- a group of victims of sexual – hi, I'm a victim of, sexual, of childhood sexual abuse. What would be more comfortable about that identity than really focusing in on – the identity we have in Christ. I mean, re- that, that term's used a lot of, by a lot of people, but let's reclaim it, the identity of who we are in Christ. That's a mystery. I don't have any good answer for you. I think it's a mystery of sin. I can talk about control. I can say what I said before, and that makes some sense to me. But I think the fundamental issue of sin within the human heart is, is uh, foolishness. It's a mystery. It's insanity. It makes no sense. Why am I more comfortable saying I am a sexual abuse victim I can give words to it, but I think it's a mystery. The words I could give to it beyond control are, um, now I will pull something from you. Mm. Um, now you will see me as somebody that needs to be embraced and held and and, uh, and, and supported. I need to be in a support group now. And don't require certain things of me. Don't maybe? require certain things of me. Let me off the hook, given what's happened to me. No, I have no objection to somebody getting up and saying, you know, I'm Jim, I'm Larry. And, and I struggle deeply with alcoholism. 
And my struggle grows out of a deeper struggle within my soul between God and myself. And will you pray for me? And will you pray that all the damage that I've experienced in my background no longer have the power to drive me to, to, to alcohol for relief? I want to live for a higher goal than relief. And I would like you as my support group, you as my therapy group, you as my spiritual director. I would like to see something happen that we can stir up my appetite for God until it's so much stronger than my appetite for relief. And do we believe that the power is available within people? And if we really believe that, that because of the Spirit of God, the power is available, that my desire for God could actually become stronger than my desire to win this argument, than my desire to get my wife to treat me in a certain way, than mm-hmm. my desire to make a point where she understands. Could that actually happen? That's the, that's the fifth principle. Trust the Spirit's work. It's a miracle. It's something which is supernatural. It doesn't come naturally. And as long as we're natural counselors, this will make no sense to us whatsoever. But if we're supernatural counselors, supernatural spiritual directors, then maybe this principle will start taking hold of our life. There's a spirit dynamic within my soul that's deeper than my flesh dynamic. And good counseling aims at exposing the flesh dynamic until brokenness over the battle that I have within my own soul, how self-obsessed I am, releases the deeper reality within me. Brokenness releases the deeper reality of the Spirit's work in my life. That, to me, is Christian counseling. That's spiritual direction. As we end today, I want to have you again give us a final thought. And I guess if I have a question, it is uh, the person who would say, uh, I've had the question at times, what if I would wait for uh, the Spirit to work and he doesn't seem to be on the same timetable I'm on? I had someone just recently posed to me, another crack counselor, and the counselor said, do you ever think sometimes that maybe there's something in us that just wants to keep a person in counseling? I mean, they do pay every session, and we just kind of mess around, and we don't get to the point. And, and then other times it's a sense of just saying, I don't know I don't know if we'd say this, but the Spirit can handle this. I mean, I think I know what I'm doing right now, so I'm going to go forth. How do we? It almost can feel mystical. It is. How, how, do, yeah, how, how do we... Not looking for a technique, but how do, how do we, in the midst of we're in a counseling session, spiritual direction time, think, God, I really want to wait. Do we pray before we go in? Is that the what do we do? Well, certainly that. In the Old Testament, the word prophet has the same meaning as the word burden. <laughs> Is there something within me that has a burden that I want to say this now because I have a burden to say it? When you have a burden from God to say something, say it. You're in sync with the Holy Spirit. Mm. Until you have the burden, wait. Be curious, listen, explore, but don't try to make something happen. I think managed care has pretty well ruined the therapy business. I have 10 sessions to fix you, so I, I can't afford to wait. I've got to pull up my, my uh, tool bag of techniques and make it happen in 10 sessions. That's all the insurance company will will pay me to do because we have this idea that there are empirically validated techniques that if I use will simply fix you in a certain amount of time. And the answer is those techniques can make a difference in people's mm-hmm. lives, but not the difference God wants to make. Right. And so the issue really in my mind is, is wait upon the spirit until a burden develops within you. And you'll know that when the burden is there, cause you're going to feel joy. You're going to want to say it to the person, not with the mood of making something happen, but you're flowing with the Holy spirit. You're going to be excited. It's going to be a wonderful experience for you. Wait for the Spirit. It's one of the hardest things in the world to do is wait. In our particular culture, we don't want to wait. We have to wait. You know, five people are in line at McDonald's, we get mad. 
<laughs> so, so what does it mean to deeply be a waiting person, waiting upon the Spirit? Because his timetable is so different. And the last thing I'd say along this line is as we follow these key principles, as we learn what the real battle is and look at the flesh dynamic, as we trust the Spirit's work and look at the Spirit dynamic, your point is very well taken, Jim, that he does not work on my timetable. Mm-hmm. And it really is the case that, um, that many times the real change takes place long after I finish working with somebody. Hmm. And they come back to me 10 years later and say, can I tell you how God has been working? And then maybe internally there's a feeling of, well, I had a part in that, didn't I? Hmm. Or maybe there's a, an, an ability to celebrate that maybe I did have a part. And if I did, praise God. But the important thing is God is working. Am I willing to really give God all the glory and see people move according to God's timetable? These key principles for that. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.